Let's pray. Our Holy Father, blessed are you in all your ways. Many are unknown to us. You have done marvelous things, and despite what many of us see as a world falling apart, you are present in all. Your promises and faithfulness always endure. We confess there are many times in our day-to-day -day life we do not turn to you. Sometimes you aren't even a thought in our heads. Forgive us for choosing idols to worship over you. Deep down in each one of us, we all devote ourselves to things that do not come from you. A hope in ourselves and our image, a hope in what gives us identity, our careers, our families, our friends. We bow our heads and repent for the need to control, control our own world. We thank you for being our Lord. There is no other. Not any other God we can see or produce in any way. You have formed the light in the darkness. You are the maker of humankind, and you know every cell in our body. Praise the Lord. May that give us great peace. Father, you have given us salvation in the form of Jesus, and there is no better gift on earth than the ability to be in relationship with you. We are so grateful and overwhelmed by your deep love for us. Jesus, we need you desperately. There isn't one person in this room or watching that doesn't have an idol, whether it's out in the open or hidden from the eyes of others. Please reveal them to each one of us. Today, may we spend some time listening to you and be able to acknowledge our own idols of worship. Lord, may we continue to see the truths you present to us. Help us to view the world through your eyes, that our eyes wouldn't be clouded by the cultures and traditions surrounding us. We pray for the continued healing and health for many individuals in our church suffering from illnesses. May their spirits and hearts be lifted closer to you in such hard times. And may you protect and care for those individuals still living in fear and anxiety. May you place a covering on their hearts. May we all lean into you as you offer hope and guidance in the midst of such fears. Jesus, please encourage Mission Fellowship to grow in our faith and dedication to you. Please help us to respond to you today. We humbly ask these names of you. In your holy name, amen. 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 Thank you, Wendy. You can have a seat. We're going to have a little bit of movement in the back as Kelton brings in the kids' class because I've got something really cool to show you guys. Many of you know that we do ministry in partnership with our brother uh, Marcel Yanogo over in Burkina Faso. Come on in, kids. And uh, we're super excited about what's been going on over there for years. Uh, we've been partnering with him in the entirety of this church and a few years before that. One of the things we love to do at this church is we love to disciple our kids. And so they've been doing an amazing job because in the past what we did is for every time they brought in their Bible, every time they memorized scripture and various other things and just behaved in class, we would want to reward them with tickets. And they'd use those tickets uh, in order to purchase prizes out of our prize booth. Well, we started to realize we were, we were given a bit of a prosperity gospel there, uh, so we started to call it Prosperity Booth. And we switched over and decided we were going to start to change it to a place where we could really encourage them to sacrifice their lives. And so what they do now is with every one of those things, they get a Lego. And then we as the elders of the church have taken the tithe, part of the tithe that you guys give, and we've set that money aside, and we like to pay them for those Legos. And so we pay them a dollar for every Lego that they get. And when they fill this container up, that's enough Legos in order to purchase a roof for a church in Burkina Faso. And so kiddos, you have done an amazing, amazing job 
in supplying a roof for brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso that otherwise would not have had one. And you'll get to see what they used to fellowship in. And so this video that I'm going to show you talks about that as well as some other pieces of what's going on over there so we can see the Lord's glory as it's working in West Africa. So let's go ahead and dim the lights and we'll start up the video here. My name is Samuel Wetrago, I'm from Dori in the north, Natondo Water Center, Kangapuraton, and James Russo. We are attending the center and uh, we are receiving uh, so much uh, Bible teaching from, from the Bible school verse by verse. And this time, while returning back to our local churches, we spread the teaching all over the north. And we are thankful to God first and uh, to you because you have uh, uh, the guys who provide for us to come and to receive the Bible teaching. May the Lord can bless you so much in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, yeah, where they used to do the Sunday services. Okay, now uh, we see the new, the, the new one they're putting the roof. Now, 
now they will move from uh, here the former church to a new church with a roof glory be to god My name is Pastor Clément Neya. I am Parayuri. And uh, my wife's name is Rahab Sawatru. Pastor, how many years are you ministering in that village? I saw that church like four years ago waiting for a church roof. I am very, very thankful to you guys. I'm very, very thankful to God and to you. And uh, I want to tell you, thank you so much. God bless you. Amen. Well done, kiddos. Have fun in class. Thanks for being so good standing there in the back. Thank you, Kelton. Well, why don't you grab your Bibles, and we're going to open up to Daniel chapter 3 is going to be our main text, but I'm also going to have you flip open to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 will be the first text we look at, but our main text will be Daniel 3, 1 through 18. We got some good kids, huh? Awesome. Imagine for a moment that on a given Sunday, I decided that I was just too exhausted to preach. And rather than asking one of the other elders or a guest speaker to come and preach, I instead instructed one of the staff to go down to a local print shop and print out a life-size cardboard cutout of my likeness. Then, on that Sunday, they bring it up on stage, center it before you, and then walk away. What would you think of after you got over the fact that that was a lot of cardboard? <laughs> what would you think about? Would you stay? Would you go through the motions that you normally would do if I were preaching, nodding your head, taking notes, turning in your Bible? Or would you get up and leave? Now, I would guess because you're smart people, and I would really hope that you would not stay because you would realize the fruitlessness and the illogic of sitting and listening to a cardboard cutout preacher. Just as ridiculous, or possibly even more so, though, is the idea that worship should be extended to an idol made of wood or stone or metal. The psalmist that we read earlier expressed this same idea. And now look with me at what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 17. He's going to mock this idea of giving worship to a God made of wood or stone. It says this in Isaiah 44, 12, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water 
and is faint. You can get this picture of this man just laboring over this idol. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it makes it into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. The ridiculousness of sitting before a cardboard cutout to hear a sermon is possibly more believable than worshiping a false god of our own making. Both are ludicrous, and yet, in our text in Daniel today, we will see the height of idolatry taking place in Babylon, the very place where Daniel and his three companions have been exiled. And we have been seeing, as we've been studying Daniel, the fact that we bear a faint resemblance as Christians to these men in exile, because we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we find ourselves in exile here on earth among the cultures of the nations. And so I want to spend this week and next week looking at Daniel chapter 3 and the fact that being a stranger in a strange land carries with it the knowledge that we will be exposed to idolatry in a big way. Daniel chapter 3 will give us a glimpse at this as well as help us understand how we can stand firm in our worship of the one true God. And so this morning, we will begin with the first task, opening our eyes to the idolatry that accompanies exile. That's what I've entitled the sermon for this morning, opening our eyes to the idolatry that accompanies exile. So let's go ahead and go back to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to read just the first half of the chapter, and then we're going to cover in depth, overlapping a bit with what we read today, next week, the entirety of the chapter. So Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to be right there in verse 1. Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the, wait for it, horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of, guess what? The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What we see in this text clearly and very simply is this one statement. Nebuchadnezzar set up a false god in his image and desired that all worship it. Nebuchadnezzar had set up a false god in his image and desired that all worship it. As we come off the tale in chapter 2, we have stuck in our minds the idea of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You might recall it with the many different layers of different uh, metals. And so it makes sense that many readers over the centuries have debated whether or not this dream was part of the motivation for Nebuchadnezzar to build the statue. No one truly knows. We also don't know for sure whether it was intended to be in his likeness, a self-portrait if you will, or if it was in the likeness of a Babylonian god. Some have suggested it was in his own likeness, but that does not necessarily mesh with what we know about Mesopotamian kings. While they had a connection to the pagan gods, they were not as intent on the idea that they were the incarnation or the embodiment of these gods as, say, maybe the Egyptian pharaohs. And so that leaves us with the very probable idea that this was actually supposed to be an image of one of the pantheon of the Babylonian gods. Now, the dimensions are also odd if you think about it. The height is so much more than the width. But if this were an image of a man on a tall pedestal, it would make sense. It could also be an obelisk. No one really knows. Now, you might agree with me, though, that this is a bit ridiculous, building a statue in the image of a god and then bowing down to it or worshiping it. It's almost as preposterous as sitting and listening to a cardboard cutout preacher. But the interesting thing is, those early Babylonians would agree with you in that statement, and so would any other religion that includes iconography or idolatrous forms of their gods. There is nothing archaeologically or biblically that tells us that the Babylonians thought these actual statues were their actual gods. In fact, they were just idols. They were just a way of connecting with those false gods since they were invisible. These images, if you will, helped them worship the God that they believed in. 
Nevertheless, even if this was intended to be an image of one of the Babylonian gods, I want to argue to you that it was indeed a god made in the likeness and the image of Nebuchadnezzar. We see this in the passage itself. First, look with me at how many times in verses 1 through 7 it notes that the idol was set up or made by Nebuchadnezzar. Right there in the first verse, it indicates that Nebuchadnezzar was the creator. He made it. Then six times over, the author indicates that the image was set up by Nebuchadnezzar. You might have caught that as I paused and in my tone. In other words, without Nebuchadnezzar, this statue would not have the power on its own to stand. It was lifeless. Nebuchadnezzar was the power behind giving it life, not the other way around. Secondly, notice the lists throughout the chapter. You might have caught a bit of my tone on that one as well. You have the long lists of the invitees at the beginning, the long list of the musical instruments, the shorter list of all peoples, nations, and languages. All of this seems to emphasize on the part of the author the desire to communicate the fanfare and feeling of enormity that was accompanying this moment. It also makes it easy to reproduce orally or audibly in order to say, hey, here's the story. All these lists help almost rhythmically let it uh, be pronounced. So you feel this excitement around this. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar may have believed he was revealing the image of a god. But in actuality, he was only revealing a god made in his own image. Now the wording in these verses It should cause our minds to go back and think through this idea of idols throughout the Bible, a biblical theology, if you will, or a theme of idolatry in the Bible. Now, if we grasp this theme and we start to see it, not only will it help us understand idolatry, but it will show us our need for a redeemer to free us from its grasp. Because, dear friends, whether you know it or not, idolatry still has a massive grasp on every one of us. You see, when we go all the way back to the beginning of the story of the Bible, the simplest categories that we can use to describe what existed was the creator and the creation. There was the one with the power and the intention to create. That would be the creator. And the thing that is powerless and purposeless without its creator. That would be the creation. You see, God is the one who has always and will always exist. And he, being infinitely loving and infinitely capable of provision, desired to make something in physical matter that would reflect his character. So man was created and formed to be that reflection. We see this in the original language of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, for example. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, the original intent was for the creation to be the embodied form of the infinite God, who the Bible says is spirit. To be his image bearer, we were created. We were formed to reflect him. It's been an eternal question. What is the meaning of life? Maybe you've even asked it at those moments where you're bored to death in your cubicle or doing your job. Well, friends, the meaning of life is to reflect the image of the one who made you. That is the meaning of life for every human. We get this even in the original language. The Hebrew word that's rendered image is the word tselem. Not selem, tselem. You guys say it with me? Tselem. Tselem. 
It's a word that means image and also idol. Another way to say it is that we were made to be the idols of God. We were formed to reflect the one who formed us, much as an idol would be. Now, this same word in the Hebrew, tselem, is used multiple times in the Old Testament to describe idols or forms of false god. Here's an example in Amos 5.26. You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your, your star god, your images, your tselem, that you made for yourselves. But you see, the temptation of the adversary of God started to creep into mankind. And Adam and Eve turned the created order upside down. The created order of a creator making image bearers was undone. And this is seen right there in Genesis 3. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation was to become the creator, the God. And Adam and Eve decided that they should be the ones to define good and evil, They should be gods. They determined that they, the creation, should be the creator. And so in this, they rebelled. Now, friends, that same rebellion, that desire to be gods of our own making, figuring out and deciding what is good and evil on our own, this is part of the DNA of mankind, known as original sin. In our effort to become gods, we have formed idols that reflect our image and participated in idolatry. You see, the word idol comes from a Greek word, eidolon, which, similar to the Hebrew tselem, means a form that reflects that which made it. The word idolatry is simply a combination of this word, eidolon, and the word latria, which means adoration. It's adoration of an idol. So it's worship of an idol. That's what idolatry is. And this idolatry invaded mankind. You guys might recall the Tower of Babel, which we've already referenced here in Daniel. But here's Genesis 11. And this was the ultimate elevation of the self that led to the dismissal of the true God. Genesis 11, 1 through 4 says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Notice the wording is the same as Daniel 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice the similarity in language as our passage this morning. The events possibly even took place in the same plane. In Daniel 3, we have a retelling of the sin of Babel. But in Daniel 3, something is different, as we will see, especially next week. There are three men who stand firm in worshiping the true God. You see, God knew this tendency was in man, and so he explicitly communicated to his own people, whom he called out of idolatry and enslavement to it, to stay away from it. This is why the first couple commands of the Ten Commandments say this. This is Exodus 20, 1 through 6. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. And remember that capital L-O-R-D behind it is the Hebrew name of God, which we might pronounce Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Notice there's no caveats. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The ongoing story of Israel, unfortunately, was that rather than stand firm in the worship of Yahweh, as the three characters in our text today did, they bent to the ways of the nations that surrounded them and convinced themselves that they were worshiping Yahweh when in fact they were using idolatry of false gods to do so. In many stories in the historical books, you would see people going to the temple, but before they get to the temple, in the courtyard are idols of foreign gods, and they would think nothing of it. The gods of those with whom they would eventually find themselves in exile had crept their way in. Notice this warning, for example, in Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. One of my favorite metaphors, by the way, in the Bible. Scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. In other words, they are worthless Fast forward to the New Testament, and this is what the Apostle Paul tells us is at the heart of all sin, undoing the created order, rebelling against God's position as the creator that defines good and evil, and placing ourselves on his throne. This is from Romans 1, 18 through 23. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they, we, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, without God's help, we as humans are stuck in this idolatry. We are created to worship, and yet the thing that we worship is most often not the God that created us blind even to the existence of idolatry in our life. And for that sin of turning the created order upside down and usurping his throne, you and I deserve the wrath of God. Now you might say, thank goodness we live in a postmodern world, right? And there's no problems with idolatry. But our tendency is to say that idolatry is largely dead in the Western world and to look down on those people who still might practice it. But friends, the reality is that idolatry has simply adjusted to be even more subversive, more invisible. 
We can find ourselves like Nebuchadnezzar or worse. We can find ourselves like one of the many peoples, nations, and languages who bow down without flinching to the golden image of whatever God Nebuchadnezzar thought he had formed. And so we must be cautious as believers in Christ because the next thing you can write down is this. In exile, we can quickly become prey to the idolatry that surrounds us. We can quickly become prey to the idolatry that surrounds us. Nebuchadnezzar had gathered his officials from all throughout his conquered empire. There's even a possibility that there were other Hebrews among this crowd that were bowing down. All of them, the crowd, without question, prostrated themselves in adoration before this idol that Nebuchadnezzar formed. No one is sure where Daniel is at in this point in the story. Perhaps he's away on state business, we don't know. But the three young men that are in our story choose to stand in opposition to this idol when all others bowed down. For them, they immediately saw a conflict with the law of God, the law of the God, to whom they swore covenantal allegiance and in whom they had faith. And so notice they didn't protest, they didn't scream, they didn't fight. They simply did not participate in the idolatry. It was in such a mundane manner that the king did not see it for himself, but someone from the crowd had to come and point it out to him. I can imagine them in my mind's eye just kind of standing there like, nope, no big deal, just not participating. Now, this is one of the few times in Daniel that we see the Hebrews revolt against the culture in which they find themselves in exile. When they are asked to show worship and adoration to an image made in the likeness of of a false God. Now, hopefully, all of us can agree that if we found ourselves in a similar situation, we would act similarly to the three Hebrew youths. But what about when the idolatry is not so obvious? What about when the idolatry is so ingrained into our culture that we begin worshiping idols without even knowing it? Think with me for a moment about some of the more subversive idolatries that we find ourselves wrapped up here in our own land. And before I start on these, I want to give you an old adage. When you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit. So recognize that as I go through these, if you start to get offended at one of these, you might be idolatrous if. It's like a bad Jeff Foxworthy joke, right? You might be idolatrous if. Okay, so recognize in your own heart as you start to maybe get a little frustrated with some of these, ask yourself, do I have something to work on here? Now I've got you thinking, right? You're like, what are they going to be? Well, the first one is nationalism. In the majority history of mankind, as nation-states formed, they were usually attached to a given god. We think about the Roman gods or the Greek gods or the Egyptian gods, but we often forget that these gods were tied to the nations in which they were worshipped. Now, we'll talk about this in greater depth later in Daniel, but the reason that this is important to remember is that it would have been normal for those people there in our story those acclimated peoples who had been conquered to take on the gods of the Babylonian culture. Most people in this time were polytheists anyway. What's the big deal if you add one more? Now, in our nation, some would rightly argue that much of our country's foundation, maybe not all of it, but much of it is built on Judeo-Christian principles. And for that, we love our country and are thankful for those pieces, not all of them, but some of them. But what if there was also another subversive religion at play? Could it be that there is a civil religion 
that many are unaware exists. In this religion, the Constitution and Bill of Rights are lifted up as sacred texts. The founding fathers have apostolic authority. The religion of the flag, not God, requires allegiance. The deity at the head is an ambiguous deity with a title only, God, not a name. And all we know about him is that he desires the prosperity of our nation over every other nation. Our elected officials become priests of this faith, and we know this because if they serve well, our nation is prosperous. If they don't serve well, our nation suffers. There are certain unpardonable sins, such as questioning our country's historic actions. There are even holy days. Can you guess what one of them is? Fourth of July. And if you totally doubt the possibility of what I'm saying, just head to Washington, D.C., and take a look at the statues that we have erected to our nationalistic God and to his servants. For example, even though it's not encased in gold like Nebuchadnezzar's statue, take a look with me at the Lincoln Memorial. Does that not look like a temple? It's formed in the fashion of a Greek temple. And at its center, it's a good thing we don't worship idols anymore, is a statue of a man who, rightly so, did save our union from division, and for that we are eternally thankful, and we should give respect to him. But behind his image, it's interesting, there's an inscription that states this, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people. Friends, doesn't this sound like religious language? We are to seek the welfare of the place in which we find ourselves in exile, absolutely, and that is why many of us call ourselves patriots. But could it be that some of us are bowing to the idolatry of nationalism without even knowing it? Well, a second form of idolatry is not only nationalism, but activism. This is the religion where serving Christ and following his commands has become secondary to being an activist. To be an activist is to believe that by ushering in social and systemic change, all of our problems will finally be solved. And to be clear, some problems need to be solved at a systemic level. But to be a Christian and believe this idea is to suggest that the main problem humanity has and that we are now trying to solve is systems rather than the need to redeem human hearts enslaved to sin. As followers of Christ, we recognize that the problem is not systems or civil constructs. These are simply side effects of the fact that men and women are in prideful rebellion against God. Activism has become a religion in and of itself. It has its own priests. It has its own sacraments. It has its own morality. It has its own law. It has its own unpardonable sin, which is to question activism. Perhaps you found yourself bowing to the idolatry of activism without even knowing it especially in the last year and a half. Nationalism, activism. A third one is materialism. This is the God of mammon in the Bible, the God of prosperity and success, money and material wealth. Worship of this God causes us to turn wants into necessities. Worship of this God causes us to see ourselves as the provider rather than God. Worship of this false god causes us to justify ourselves into believing that we are owed material wealth. It too can be seen to be a religion because in its god, we have put our trust and security. Have you found yourself in this form of idolatry? 
Jesus was clear, especially when dealing with this one form of idolatry, that there is no room for any God but the one true God. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I am sure there are many others. This is just my limited brain producing some examples, but these seem to be some of the biggest subverting Christians currently, especially that I've seen in pastoral care. It's so important for us to ask God to give us insight if we have fallen into any of these. These are some of the current idolatries that surround us. But if not these, if you think of these three and say, those aren't a problem for me, we must then each search out the idolatry we tend towards internally. Paul Tillich, a Lutheran theologian, pointed out that a person's God is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks about the most, or affects one's life the most. What might that be in your own life? Is it relaxation? Ease, comfort, football. Even that has a temple and a holy day. Is today a holy day for that religion? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would that men everywhere lift holy hands in praise. Touchdown! Man, if we could get the men in this church to react in prayer that way, woof, we'd be on fire. Is it efficiency? Is it success? Is it money? Power? Maybe it's addictions? Sex? Love? Family? A spouse? Children? Perhaps personal freedom? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller gives some great definitions of idols. Here's one. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I only had that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. He goes on to say that we can often tell what our idol is because it's what we defend and what we get angry about when someone threatens it, someone questions it. We can find ourselves angry beyond reason. Using these definitions I've just laid out, what might your idol be? Even within Christianity, when we believe we are in service to Christ, we can find that we have idols. Our story today gives us hints at what this might look like. First, we can know we are in idolatry when the God we are serving is based off of our own image. It looks, thinks, and feels like we do. It rarely challenges us. Nebuchadnezzar made the God, and so when it was challenged, it was as if he was challenged. It was a God made in his own image. How do we know if we've fallen into this idolatry? Well, here's a way to think about it. If the God we are serving and his law and commands are comfortable and spark a little adjustment of our heart and mind, we're probably in idolatry. You see, the God of the Bible is infinitely good, infinitely righteous, and infinitely wise. And so for us, we will spend the rest of our earthly lives and probably all of eternity as well growing into the fullness of his image. If we are pursuing the true God and his true word, we will always walk in conviction, not shame, but conviction to some level. We will always be challenged and we will always be humbled because the God of the Bible does not think like us. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, how much of the God we believe we serve is formed out of the Bible and how much of it is formed out of our own feelings and emotions and opinions and desires. Your familiarity with the Bible and the God that exists and is spoken about in it will give you a partial answer to this. If you don't know the Bible, if you're not striving to know it better and better and to learn the God of the Bible, then the God that is in your mind and heart is your own image. It's made up by you. Secondly, we can know we are in idolatry when we use the God we serve to try and gain control over others. Nebuchadnezzar uses this idol and all the religious pomp and circumstance around it to force others to bow to the God of his own making. In the church today, I continue to find it so interesting that Christians are shocked and offended when sinners sin. We take offense that they're rebelling against God as if their lack of worship will somehow negate our own or as if forcing others to follow the laws of Christ against their will will somehow make our world more tolerable. But notice that there is no mention of the three Hebrews being shocked at the idolatry around them. It's not as if everybody bowed down and they went, what? What's happening? They knew who they followed. And so they need not feel frustrated when challenged or when others do not worship him. They were able to worship in strength and in peace in the midst of the exile, being the only three doing so. Friends, do you find yourself worshiping freely in exile or striving in anger and frustration to try and force others to believe like you do before you can actually worship in peace? Perhaps you need to examine if the God you follow is the one worthy of worship no matter how many or how few others are serving him. Third, we know we are in idolatry when we think ourselves to be justified and glorified by worship of anything other than the true and living God. In verse 15 of our reading today, Nebuchadnezzar asks the question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You see what happened there? Even Nebuchadnezzar, if he was intending the statue to be an idol of a pagan god, because he had created it, it actually became a god of himself, an all-powerful god, and in so doing, he had glorified himself, just like our first mother and father in the garden. When we find ourselves attempting to save ourselves and to glorify ourselves through anything other than submission to the gospel of Christ, we are stuck in idolatry. Another one that I see this taking place in is in the idea of self-realization or actualization. I see this in the church all the time. Friends, this is why I love and hate the Enneagram. I love the Enneagram for the purposes of looking at it for sanctification. If you don't know what it is, it's kind of a personality test. I love looking at it and going, well, this is kind of what my personality looks like. And so I can use this as a tool to help me know where my weak points and my strengths are. And we can use it, in a sense, in community in that way. But I hate it because when people dive into the Enneagram as if figuring out themselves will bring salvation, it's an idol. And it worries me. We have to be careful with these things. It can be a good tool, but it can also be dangerous. And all of these versions of idolatry, if our eyes are not open to them, they'll enslave us. And rather than being exiles in a strange land, we will find ourselves assimilated into the idolatry that surrounds us. But as followers of Christ, 
as ambassadors of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of God, no matter what culture or nation we find ourselves a part of, we must stand firm against the idolatry that wants to enslave us. And praise God that as these three men proclaim to the king, God is the one that can and has delivered us from idolatry. For you see, in Jesus, by his spirit, God has freed us from the enslavement of idolatry. In Jesus, by his spirit, God has freed us from the enslavement of idolatry. At times, if you're like me, you might look around at the temptation, both externally and internally, to fall into some of these idolatries. And it starts to become overwhelming, the gravitational pull. As you get older, you think, no wonder so many Christians I knew that used to be on fire are now in their 40s and 50s and 60s, not following the Lord at all. And what was it? It was a simple idol that overtook them. Family, sports, life, politics. But we want to be like Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, who here are identified by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We want to stand firm against the idolatry we find surrounding us and filling us. We want to see the ridiculousness of bowing to a false god in hopes that it will make life happy and comfortable. Glory be to God that we don't need to guess at who our God is anymore. For in giving us his word, and his word made manifest in his Son, we have seen the Creator. In Christ, he once and for all showed us who he is. There is no more doubt. We don't need to fashion idols of our own making to describe him, you see, it's interesting, being Protestants, Reformed Protestants, you might look around and notice we have no pictures of Jesus in here. Now, I'm one because I love church history. I, I like icons. I, I like some of the old iconography of the early church. But the reason we have no pictures of Jesus in here, do you know why it is? Is because he's told us where we can look to see who he is. And it's not icons. It's not a crucifix on the wall. Friends, what is the body of Christ that exists today? Say it out loud. The church. What is the temple in which Christ currently dwells? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, but his spirit dwells within the temple of the church. And so we, when we are walking in the commands of God, loving in his name, imaging him the way we're supposed to, in those moments, we can look to each other and see the character of God coming through. It may not be the face of Jesus, but it's the character of God showing through. And so we don't need pictures of Jesus. We don't need the California white Jesus with the long flowing blonde hair that the Mormons worship. We don't need the crucifix. We just simply need the spirit of God dwelling with us and his word and we know that we have Jesus. In his holy word and in the person of Jesus Christ, God shows us his image. This is from Colossians 1:15 through 16. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Friends, as we immerse ourselves in God's word, we see the truth of our Lord, God, and King in Jesus Christ. 
We see the entire Old Testament pointing forward to who he was. We see the truth of the Gospels portraying the truth of God's, uh, God's incarnation. And we see all of the rest of the New Testament pointing back to who he is and what he's done. And by his spirit, our eyes can be opened to the idolatry that surrounds us in exile and the places where we worship without even knowing it. As the Lord has convicted each of us this morning, and friends, I'll tell you, when I was studying, I was convicted first and foremost of the places in my life where I have hidden idolatry that I've let grow over time. All of us this morning as we're convicted are called to repent from the worship of the idols we have identified and accept Christ's death and crucifixion on our behalf as the way to forgiveness of that idolatry as the way to take care of that idolatry in our lives and be reconciled to the Father. When Paul was preaching in Athens, he came across an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. He spoke up and proclaimed that the creator God had once and for all answered the question of who he is. Would you turn there with me? Acts 17. We're almost done here. Acts 17, and take a look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Church, who is this man he speaks of? Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, the one who will come and judge us if we do not repent of our idolatry. If you are a person who has been fashioning this idea of God in your own mind, today is the day God is calling you to repent and believe in his son whom he has sent as his express image. God is calling you to give your adoration, your worship, and your very life to him. Friends, there is no other God but the one who showed himself to us in Jesus. If you would like to give your life over to him in fullness today, there are elders here who would love to talk with you and pray with you and talk to you about what it is to become a disciple. Raise your hand if you're out there, elders. There's Ryan, there's Patrick, and myself. We'd love to chat with you guys about what it is. I think Dallas might be out in the the atrium there. Feel free to come and chat with any one of us about what it is to be a disciple. If you're online and you'd like to talk Uh, My email is hans at missionsalem.com. I'd love to spark a conversation with you. 
Now, if you are a disciple of Christ and you recognize that you have given room to idolatry in your life, or perhaps you've become overcome by the idolatry swirling around you in this strange land, today is the day for you and I to repent and take it to the cross. To be Jesus' disciple is to slowly but surely repent from all that we are trying to do to craft him into our own image. And instead, to embrace the fact that this walk in Christ is one of constant reformation, slowly being molded into his image. As we observe Christ, as we embrace his character, his love, and his commands, we will, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3, we will behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image, the image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. One commentator speaking of this uh, text that I have up on the screen there says, we can never encounter God and remain unchanged. Beholding the glory affects our transformation as we are changed into a veritable likeness of him. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, I hope that the Spirit has given us eyes to see and ears to hear the idolatry in our own lives and the ways in which we have all assimilated to the idolatry around us so that we might repent and turn to him so that he might behold his, we might behold his glory alone. And in so doing, we can go from this place with him shining through us as the things formed to reflect the one who formed us. Amen? Amen.